stay connected this winter with this unbeatable deal from BreezeLine. Get reliable, fiber-powered internet for just $19.99 per month with all-in pricing for two years. But that's not all. Your first month is on us. This deal gets better with a free modem and installation along with free Wi-Fi your way whole home coverage. Safeguard your network from cyber threats and keep all your devices connected and secured with this amazing offer. Act now. Terms and conditions apply. Offer expires March 3rd, 2024. Learn more at BreezeLine.com. For years, I just dreaded going to the dentist. But at Advanced Dentistry, I don't have to. First and foremost, they want you to feel comfortable when you walk in. Like, you'll feel it. Whereas in the past, I might have gone into the dentist and thinking, I might feel some pain at some point. But with IV sedation, it can be something that you don't dread. If you've been avoiding the dentist because of fear, worry, or just not wanting to be judged, you're not alone. Visit NoFearDentist.com to learn how IV sedation can change your life. Hi, I'm Anna Marie Cox, and this is With Friends Like These. This week, we're diving back into the fun house that is diet culture. So right away, a content warning for talk about eating disorders and dieting. The reason we're getting into those topics is that we're going to hear the story of Weight Watchers with a special guest, Aubrey Gordon. For five years, she wrote the anonymous column, Your Fat Friend, for Self Magazine, and now she is no longer anonymous. She has a new book out, What We Don't Talk About When We Talk About Fat, and she's the host of one of my personal favorite podcasts, Maintenance Phase. She takes us on a journey that includes Heinz Ketchup, Maya Angelou, and some personal reflections on what it's like to join Weight Watchers as a preteen. Aubrey Gordon, Weight Watchers, coming right up. If you think kids are picky, you haven't met the parents at Ritual. After scanning countless labels for multivitamins they could rely on for their own kids, they decided they had to create one for themselves and make it with the same high standards approach that Ritual is known for and parents can trust. Introducing Essential for Kids. Now, I don't have children, but I am a little like a child in how much I dislike taking pills. Ritual takes the chore out of it by making a pleasant, you know, ritual. I love the look and smell and style of ritual, and it makes it easy to think of it as part of the same morning routine as yoga, meditation, and coffee. Now, kids need a little more help, from what I understand. Ritual knows how difficult it can be to get your kids the nutrients they need. That's why they made Essential for Kids, to help fill the gaps in the diets of ages 4 to 12 without making a single compromise to quality or taste. They have a natural citrus berry flavor, and they're also convenient by design. Each gummy is a daily multi, has vegan omega-3 DHA, and is a good source of fiber. You deserve to know what you're giving your kids and why. With Ritual's one-of-a-kind visible supply chain, you'll always know what nutrients are in the multivitamins and where they're sourced. When it comes to what goes into kids' bodies, they've got being picky down to a science. That's why Ritual is offering my listeners 10% off during their first three months. Visit ritual.com slash friends to start your ritual or add essential for kids today. That's ritual.com slash friends. Aubrey, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. Well, I'm excited to have you because this is my day off, basically. (laughs) Because we're stealing the format of your show, Maintenance Phase, which is my favorite format for any podcast, which is someone comes on and explains stuff to a person that doesn't know things. (laughs) 
Um, so uh, Maintenance Phase is a show that I co-host with Michael Hobbs of You're Wrong About and Huffington Post and being a great journalist fame. Um, he's wonderful. Uh, and the podcast is really focused on sort of dispelling a bunch of myths and misinformation behind uh, health and wellness and weight loss fads. Um, we tend to go a little harder in on sort of diets and the culture of dieting that we've got because, um, you know, sort of we have this sort of mythology in this country and in this world about like, if you just put a little shoulder into it, fat people could totally lose a bunch of weight. Um, and the problem is they're not trying. And what we actually know is that 95 to 98% of weight loss attempts fail, whether you call it a diet or a lifestyle change or a detox or a cleanse or whatever the things are. Um, and that someone who's my size, I'm about 350 pounds, um, has less than a 1% chance of attaining their BMI recommended weight in their lifetime. I mean, I think the other thing is like, part of the reason that we talk about this is that, um, you know, a lot of the things that we think we know about health and wellness are mostly like marketing. Um, so sort of revealing the mechanisms behind what we think we know and who's making money off of different models, whether or not they work, all of that kind of stuff is really fascinating. And I will say, as someone who's sort of continually making this deep dive into research, I am surprised every time by every topic. And today's topic is like zero exception. On this season of With Friends Like These, what we're doing is looking at good intentions, which I think actually a lot of the, a lot of the things that you look at are genuinely well-intentioned, like so many tragedies, right? Um, like so many um, perpetuations of oppression, well-intended. And the thing that I asked you to talk about is something that's fascinated me for a long time. Weight Watchers. Yeah, totally. Totally, totally. So I will say I come to Weight Watchers um, as a former member. Uh, I joined Weight Watchers when I was 11, I think. Um, and yeah, totally. <laughs> it's, it's one of those things where I now look at 11-year-olds and I'm like, that is a real heartbreaker. You know what I mean? Just to think about um, kids that young getting that focused on their bodies and how to change them and all that kind of stuff. And research shows us that that begins at like four or five for many kids, um, that level of sort of body dissatisfaction. Um, and uh, it felt really interesting and challenging to me. I have done a, like this much, like a small amount of research into Weight Watchers. So this was a really fun and fascinating deep dive. So I'm excited. Let's dive in. Go, go. Tell me, tell me, tell me more. Yes, yes, yes. So the founder's name is Gene Nidech. Do you remember any of the sort of like, were there any pieces of that story that have stayed with you? Tell me what pieces of that story have stayed with you. She's not just the president. She's a member, right? Like that's, that's part of the story is that she had some dramatic weight loss story and that she became, you know, the spokesmodel in addition to becoming very wealthy at a time when, you know, there weren't a lot of female entrepreneur success stories and that she, she had a very feminine brand and that she continued to quote unquote diet for the rest of her life. And the diet sounds pretty extreme. Yeah, totally. It doesn't sound like, it sounds like something you and I today and other people today might call something of a disordered eating issue. 
you're nailing it. <laughs> you're ahead of me. It's totally true. So not only was her, I mean, like, we'll get to this, but like looking back, not only on her sort of approach to dieting, but also on what led her to begin dieting, I would actually describe both of those phases as pretty disordered eating in a way that we just didn't really have language or a framework for in the 50s and early 60s when she was sort of embarking on this whole thing. Um, so yeah, let's totally start with Jean. <laughs> She's great. Um, so Jean Nidech um, started Weight Watchers. There is sort of this um, lore within Weight Watchers about Jean, which was um, that someone, uh, she was about 210 pounds at her highest weight. Um, and someone mistook her for being pregnant. And she was like, that's it. It's time. I got to lose some weight. Right. Um, and the lore is she decided that she needed um, some support from her friends. So she started inviting friends over and that's how like Weight Watchers began, right? It was just like conversations amongst friends, sharing strategies for losing weight, that kind of thing. Um, what I found in the research is that lore is, you know, like a lot of lore, there's like a kernel of truth there. Um, I always for sure thought that she invented Weight Watchers and the diet and the whole bit. Um, she did not in fact invent anything, anything, N not any of it was invented. <laughs> um, basically, uh, she, so we'll situate Jean a little bit. Um, she was a, um, Jewish housewife. She lived in Queens. Uh, she worked in a furniture factory. Her husband was an airport bus driver. They're a pretty solidly like working class to like lower middle class kind of family. And she was this sort of classic, you know, I tried everything kind of person. Um, the thing that led to her weight loss, she lost famously, she lost 72 pounds. Um, and that was sort of the beginning of Weight Watchers, right? Um, as it turns out, she did not lose 72 pounds on Weight Watchers. She lost 72 pounds when she went to the New York City Board of Health's clinic, where they had uh, developed a diet. It was called the Prudent Diet. It's like, the most early 60s diet where they're like, eat a lot of fish and bread and skim milk. There you go. <laughs> Which just seems like a recipe for, if I just think about like a bunch of fish and milk floating around <laughs> in my stomach, it makes me feel not good. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, oh, I like both of those things, but oh, it was like eat fish five days a week. Maybe not in quantities, of, right? Like those yeah. are, yeah. Okay. That's right. That's right. And it was like, eat fish five days a week eat, like drink two glasses of skim milk a day, you know, like it was pretty prescriptive as a diet. Um, and it included this support group element. Jean went through the whole program. She dropped a bunch of weight and she decided that she didn't like how their group leader was running things. So she basically replicated the New York City Board of Health program out of her living room and started charging people for it. It had been a free program through the city. It is interesting to me, the charging people part of it. It's super interesting. And it's really interesting to me to look at, here's this public health thing that worked for someone who then branches off and figures out how to privatize it is really feels like a very American story. Yeah, I was going to say, like, <laughs> yeah, here's something yeah, the yeah. government's doing pretty well. Totally. Totally. Let's That's just right. start charging people for it like that'll be yeah that's our innovation is to 
ask people to pay. But that was that was it. That was her innovation. Truly, that was it. Um, and the other thing that was really interesting in sort of looking into Weight Watchers was how quickly it grew, right? I would think that if this was something that was being used in public health institutions, it wouldn't feel like that much of a revelation. It for sure did at the time. So in just a few years, um, so she founded Weight Watchers in 1963. By 1967, she had over 100 franchises. Those were in the U.S., in Canada, in Puerto Rico, in Israel, in the U.K. She was like, you know, going worldwide pretty quickly. <laughs> um, uh-huh. um, and in 1968, the company went public and its price per share tripled in its first day of trading. So people, there was just sort of this frenzy about Weight Watchers, right? Um, that same year, their franchises reached 43 out of 50 states. So they're really quickly sort of dominating this kind of weight loss market, right? Around that same sort of arc of time in the late 60s and early 70s, um, Jean starts to become more and more of a celebrity. Uh, she becomes uh, really good friends with Maya Angelou. They like pal around town together. Maya Angelou describes her as like a sister. It's really fascinating. I for sure didn't see that coming. <laughs> well, let's posit that Jean was adorable, right? Like, she seems very... What I read about her is that she was super vibrant. What I'm finding interesting, and just what you're telling me so far, is the extent to which American, and I guess international, like Western diet culture has been the same. Like we've always fetishized like people who lose large amount of weight. Always is a weird, obviously we don't want to say always, but like at least goes back like mid century, you know, to just have this thing where like, oh, you lost a lot of weight. That makes you a really interesting person who we should make famous. Totally. And I will say as a fat person, it's also like a really clear statement of values, right? When you congratulate someone for losing weight, what you're saying is, I recognize that being thin is inherently superior to being fat. Congratulations on ascending <laughs> to this like next level, right? It's, it's, it's an odd, I think it's more revealing than we think it is. Yeah. It's like, you've changed the thing about yourself that makes you somewhat marginalized or, or somewhat discriminated against. And so we're going to just reinforce the fact that we were right to discriminate against you <laughs> by rewarding you for becoming something else. So there is this quote from the New York Times uh, uh, obituary about Jean that is feels really illustrative of the kind of celebrity that she was that I'd love to just like read out to you. So this is what the New York Times had to say in their obituary of Jean Nightedge. It feels like such a window into sort of the world that Weight Watchers was at this point. Quote, In 1973, 16,000 Weight Watchers jammed Madison Square Garden for the group's 10th anniversary. It was like a revival. Bob Hope, Pearl Bailey, and Roberta Peters were there, but the star, in a drift of white chiffon, was Mrs. Nidech, a combination Cinderella and Amy Semple McPherson with her own evangelical message. Overeating is an emotional problem with an emotional solution. Crowds surged for her autograph to touch her or even to make eye contact. She looked as if she had never been, uh, she looked as if she had never had a cookie in her life. Um, Which feels like 
I don't know, man, 16,000 people in Madison Square Garden all sort of reaching for this woman is like a level of celebrity that is pretty wild, no? Well, the comparison to a quasi-cult leader <laughs> is, is also pretty wild. Well, and it's also an interesting statement because of how she talks about sort of before she started dieting, which was um, when she describes that, no joke, I was reading it and I was like, oh my God, you are listing off the clinical criteria that we now use to diagnose binge eating disorder. Like she talked about hiding, she would never eat dessert in public, but she would hide boxes of Malomars in her house and eat them away from her husband and kids and make sure that nobody saw her. And she would like particularly binge on sweets, right? So this sort of like, she looked like she'd never had a cookie in her life is such a stark contrast to like, no, that was like a real specific binging food for her. And also feels like, um, something that comes up in a number of diets where I'm like, oh, this just comes from you having an eating disorder and not really having the language to say this is an eating disorder, right? Where I'm like, you didn't need a, a diet support group. You needed a therapist, my guy. Like, oh, bud, I wish you had some mental health care. <laughs> that feels like a different, you know, a different problem. Eating disorders will sort of come up throughout this. I read a little bit about their early Weight Watchers meetings, and they had a conversation at one of them about, like, what do you do when you go to a Mexican restaurant? So they were talking about, like, how do you deal with a basket of chips in front of you? Um, and they had this whole strategy conversation about, like, you take five chips out, you break them into small pieces on your bread plate, and you eat them, like, small piece by small piece. And it just really felt to me like, oh, this is like instructive for restrictive eating, right? Like these are also behaviors that anorexic people use, right? To be seen eating without needing to eat much, like to fly under the radar, right? Um, it, it felt really troubling to read that part. But again, that was also like 50 years ago. So things can change. Well, things can change, but that is, I think people can kind of be guided into disordered eating. I won't call it like an eating disorder, but you can be, you can think you're going on a diet and be like, this is going to be good for me. And I'm going to, I am, I am a strong feminist who's, you know, I love my body, but I just need to lose a few pounds. And I'm not speaking from experience at all here. Um, <laughs> and you, you start with all these good intentions and then like, because you're restricting, you get hungry, which I now know from reading, of course you do, <laughs> right? So then you're like, and you're taught that's bad. Like you have to distract yourself. You have to do something. You cannot, you cannot simply eat. You have to have a strategy about how to deal with your hunger. And like some of those things are just, are, are like, well, if you're hungry, you know, I, I've never actually seen the advice to like suck on a rock, but like, I feel like... <laughs> You're basically being told like to do these things like to or pretend eating like like gum or something or like you take a cracker and then you break it. You break it up or instead of chips, you have carrots. It gets into some choppy waters. <laughs> That's for sure. And I think it's like a really tricky line that I feel like I'm figuring out how to walk that sort of everyone around me is figuring out how to walk, which is like how do you pay attention to your health? How do you like look after yourself and not sort of tip into 
this extremely weird and extremely pervasive sort of logic of dieting, which is like, how do you go? I'm going to eat some carrots without going, I'm going to eat five carrots. I'm going to write down how many carrots I eat. I'm going to look at the caloric content and determine, is it a small carrot or a medium carrot? I'm going to, you know what I mean? Like all of this sort of stuff that comes with it. And I will say to your point, like as a kid who went to Weight Watchers, it really felt to me, not at the time, but in retrospect, like a graduate program and how to have an eating disorder, right? That there was so much stuff that was like, how do you stop thinking about food? How do you keep it out of your head? How do you like, you know, how do you restrict all these foods without focusing on them? But human brains are like, not actually that good (laughs) at, you know, that kind of stuff. So like, you know, if I say to myself, you can't have Cheetos, you can't have Cheetos, you can't have Cheetos. My brain the entire time is just going like, Cheetos, 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 right? That it sort of also like encourages this kind of backlash in behavior. With Friends Like These is brought to you by Best Fiends. Now, I've been rereading a lot of Stephen King lately, and that is partly because I'm appearing on a Stephen King podcast. It's the Losers Club, and it's really great. And I'm partly doing it because Stephen King is comfort reading. I'm also playing comfort games. One of them is Best Fiends, like friends, but fiends. It is the top-rated mobile puzzle adventure game, and it has dozens of characters and thousands of levels. It's the perfect antidote to doom scrolling. I love that it's completely low stakes. No one dies. You aren't penalized by losing a life. It's bright and bouncy and nothing like the real world. You Collect mushrooms and strawberries. It's addicting without being stressful. There's always another update, whether it's more levels, fun events, or changes to the game based on fan feedback. You might wind up obsessed, but it's a mostly harmless obsession. Download Best Fiends free today on the Apple App Store or at Google Play. That's friends, but without the R, Best Fiends. With Friends Like These is brought to you by BetterHelp. Things are bad right now in my neck of the woods. I've moved to Austin, and I I still got a winter storm, and it would be funny if it weren't so tragic. The weight of what's happening to other people sometimes gets me down just as much as anything personal. But you know, that is something you can talk about in therapy, too. It's not all childhood trauma and self-image. And BetterHelp is there for you to find the perfect therapist for all of those topics. BetterHelp offers counselors who are specialized in depression, anger, stress, anxiety, relationships, sleeping, and trauma. They'll assess your needs and match you with someone you can connect with in a safe and private online environment. And you can start talking to someone in just 24 hours. It's not self-help. Is professional counseling with expertise you might not find locally. You can send a message to your counselor anytime and you'll get a quick and thoughtful response. You can also do the more traditional weekly session over phone or via video, all without sitting in a waiting room or even leaving the house. And who leaves the house these days? Anything you share is confidential. And BetterHelp is so committed to facilitating great therapeutic matches, they make it easy and free to change counselors if needed. It's more affordable than traditional offline counseling, and financial aid is available. You can check out the testimonials posted daily on their site. In fact, so many people have been using BetterHelp that they are recruiting additional counselors in all 50 states, and they also reach people worldwide. Start living a happier life today. As a listener, you'll get 10% off your first month by visiting betterhelp.com slash friends. Join over 1 million people who've taken charge of their mental health. Again, that's betterhelp, better, H-E-L-P, dot com slash friends. 
Ready for an amazing deal? BreezeLine's fiber-powered internet starting at $19.99 per month offers the reliability you deserve and security you can trust. Whether you're streaming, gaming, or working from home, we've got all your needs covered with speeds up to 1 gig and our two-year price lock guarantee. This deal gets even better with two free months of internet, free equipment, and free Wi-Fi your way to protect against cyber threats. Act now. Terms and conditions apply. Offer expires July 8, 2024. Learn more at BreezeLine.com. Back to our conversation with Aubrey Gordon. So Jean Nightedge runs Weight Watchers. Um, she has a good friend who's the CEO and she plays a leadership role as well. Until 1979, when she sells Weight Watchers to, wait for it, Heinz Ketchup. <laughs> Heinz Ketchup owns Weight Watchers from 1979 to 1999 in the weirdest turn. <laughs> And then in 1999, uh, they sell Weight Watchers to a very wealthy Belgian owner of a sugar factory. So fully, like, it's just really very funny to me and fascinating that Weight Watchers has been owned now for decades by, like, companies that produce, quote unquote, junk food. Right. I just think that's very funny. Well, no, it makes sense because like part of the reason that diet culture exists is to keep us consuming. Right. Like the way that I mean, I'm again, this is sort of a new kind of way of thinking about it for me. But one of the reasons why diet culture and capitalism like work so well together is because of the binge part of diet culture. Right. It's because after you restrict, you then you then reward yourself or you binge like we may not have as much sugar eating in this country if we didn't have such a pernicious diet culture. Not that again, sugar eating is bad. Not that sugar eating is bad, but we do consume a lot of sugar, right? And I think that that they work together. Sugar is something that is pumped into our food, whether or not we know about it, right? Like the high point of sugar in food or one of the peaks was the 90s when everything was low fat and they made up for the lack of fat with a metric ton of sugar, right? Like I used to live off of those like Yoplait fat-free yogurt cups. And now I look back at those and they're like, whatever, like 30 grams of sugar in like one cup of yogurt where you're like, this was the healthy thing? Oh God. <laughs> oh. <laughs> um, I will say to your point, the parent company now is called Invis. Um, they, uh, that's the sugar factory owner um, who also owns Keebler. They also own Sunshine Bakery who makes Cheez-Its. And weirdly, they own Blue Buffalo Pet Food. Go fig. So like that thing that you're talking about, about like either we're dieting or we're binging, um, is really borne out in this one company's portfolio, right? Like they've sort of got both ends of this covered. And I want to be very, when you're super clear, when I say binging, I do just mean like that idea that like, if we're not dieting, we sort of like tr do this thing where like, I guess I'm going to eat sugar. Like I'm not dieting. I'm just going to eat a ton of sugar or I'm going to eat the things that are... I'm going to eat the things that are presented to me as cheap and easy to eat, which have lots of sugar in them, which I'm not supposed to eat. Absolutely. And I think there is this sort of like fetishization a little bit that happens around control and the idea of control and also 
we imagine that when we like lose control, by which I mean we like stop dieting or stop restricting, that we will all of a sudden just be like, breakfast is a dozen donuts. I don't know anymore. <laughs> like, that we will like lose all like relationship to our own bodies and reality, <laughs> like everything, right? Um, and that feels like definitely baked into the Weight Watchers story in a pretty big way. Um, so there have been, I looked into some of the research around the effectiveness of Weight Watchers um, over time, because one of the other big myths that I feel like are sort of stories that I grew up with was, you know, diets come and go, but Weight Watchers is the one that has stood the test of time. It's been here for decades. They know what they're doing. It's not fancy, but they've got it on lock, right? Um, as it turns out, I totally thought that that meant that Weight Watchers was the same thing all the time. Weight Watchers changes their whole diet like every three to five to 10 years. So there's actually very little longitudinal research on what's the effect of being a lifetime member of Weight Watchers because they just keep changing it. Like it has changed so many times. It's almost like it might be on purpose. (laughs) It's like planned obsolescence, but a diet. Totally, totally, totally. So there's been some data that shows like Weight Watchers um, historically has pointed to some data that says people lose twice as much weight on Weight Watchers as they do sort of in standard medical care, which is true. But again, when you're changing your diet that frequently, I don't know if they're talking about a current iteration or which past it, or you know what I mean? Like it's hard to measure, right? If it keeps changing. And that twice as much weight lost number isn't like you would lose 20 pounds. Now you've lost 40 pounds. It's like you would lose three pounds and now you've lost six pounds. Like it's, it's small amounts, right? We're not talking about sort of like commanding amounts of weight for a lot of, for a lot of members after a year we're talking about here. So now that we're talking about how it's changed, I think we have to rewind a little bit. And especially since both of us have mentioned the part that I think some people might know about Weight Watchers, which is the support group aspect. What is Weight Watchers? Like, what is what is the experience of being on Weight Watchers? Because there's because also we all see the Weight Watchers diet like advertised. We see it advertised as like prepared foods. There's this points system that is missed i sometimes like i have you know i'm a a woman in the world so i have bought diet food (laughs) and i see i see points i don't know i'm like i guess this is good i guess whatever so anyway tell me about the experience of weight watchers so weight watchers is basically like most of the weight loss diets that we know boil down to like one of three or four different models. Weight Watchers is sort of like one of the primary models that we have, which is low fat and low calorie diet. At its core, that's what it's about. Points are calculated based on the calories per serving of a food. And if it's high in fat, it'll maybe be a point more than just its calorie value. If it's high in fiber, it might be a point less because of its calorie value. You get this little cardboard slider that you use to determine points of different foods. Now they sell an actual like pocket points calculator that you can buy. It's a whole thing. (laughs) It's a whole thing. (laughs) I'm sure there's, there, there's absolutely an app. There's definitely an app. There was a website. I found out that in 2001, they launched their website and in 2000, which was weightwatchers.com. And in 2007, they launched weightwatchersformen.com. 
And I really wish that I could see Weight Watchers for Men to just know <laughs> how that's different, how it's a different. Um, so Weight Watchers is sort of the core idea of Weight Watchers is you go to a Weight Watchers meeting, you pay your weekly fee to be at that Weight Watchers meeting. Um, a group leader weighs you in. When I, I did it, that happened in front of everybody else in line. Now it sounds like they do that privately, which is frankly a step up, right? Uh and then you head into this sort of support group space. Your group leader is someone who has lost all of the weight that they wanted to lose um, and has maintained that weight for some time on Weight Watchers. And they are considered to be the authority, right, um, on sort of how to lose weight. And then you have these conversations that are, um, you know, sometimes programmed, sometimes not. It really depends on the group leader, in my experience. Um, that, you know, is rarely informed by thinking about eating disorders. It's rarely informed by um, anything aside from just how do you lose weight quickly, you know, and sort of within our system. I remember extensive conversations at the Weight, weight Watchers meetings that I was at um, where people would talk about, I can't wait to lose this weight because when I do, like my marriage is going to come back together or I'll get this promotion at work, right? That it's also sort of this Petri dish for like magical thinking to sort of bloom around the fantasies that we have about what will happen when we become as thin as we think we should be. I think the thing that troubles me most now as I look back on Weight Watchers is A, that that sort of magical thinking went unchecked. And B, that there was, and as far as I know, there is still no screening for folks who might have disordered eating histories, right? That there is this sort of like quasi-therapeutic sort of element to Weight Watchers, um, but there's not actually psychological supervision or screening or any of that kind of stuff. They actually got hit very hard a couple of times in the last few years um, about this part as they've expanded their um, uh, their programs to children and teens. So should we talk about that for a second? Let's talk about you being 11 and, and going into Weight Watchers because I, I mean, I'm in a way not surprised because we start telling kids they need to lose weight younger and younger and younger. There's some really horrifying statistics that I bet you're even more up to date on about the age at which now, boys as well as girls start thinking about dieting. Um, so, 11. You're 11. Yeah. Um, so, I was 11. Um, I went to, it was at a community center um, in our neighborhood. I went to sort of down the stairs of this community center. And I don't know, you know, I had sort of kid brain about how old all of the adults were, <laughs> right? But I definitely remember being like, I am definitely the only kid here. Um, and it felt like this sort of ushering into the world of womanhood, right? It was overwhelmingly, if not exclusively women. There was a lot, a lot, a lot of magical thinking and sort of talking about what will happen in your marriage, what will happen in your job, what will happen with your kids, if you can just get thin enough. And it uh, feels really sad to me now to think about that being my like introduction into a world of adult women is like, no, what that means, what it means to be a woman in this space is to just be always disappointed in your own body 
and always wanting something more or different. Is there anything in that program that where people celebrate each other that they it, which could be good or bad, depending on, like, I guess, the framework. But like it, it is a support group. <laughs> mm hmm. There's definitely celebration when people become lifetime members, um, which is when you uh, achieve your goal weight and maintain it for, I think it's six weeks after. Um, so if you can do that, there's like a big celebration. But as with most diets, that often ends with people regaining a good chunk of the weight that they've lost, if not more, within three to five years. Um, so it's also really tricky, right? Again, now knowing what I know, thinking about that model makes me really sad because it feels like it's just setting folks up for a big fall. Not everyone, but enough people that it's really, you know, feels really hard to think about that kind of celebration not being a prelude to a fall, right? I want to jump in here because I want to say something y'all say on maintenance phase a lot, which is that there are reasons to lose weight, that everyone gets to choose, everyone gets to decide, you know, do what it is that works for you. Uh, we don't want to take anything away from anyone. We don't want to make anybody feel bad about how they relate to their own body or food or any of that kind of stuff. And also, it's really um, tricky and sort of thorny to say, I just want this for myself apart from this social context that I have always lived in and that has sent really clear and strong messages for my whole life, right? That sort of, um, we absolutely all have the will and ability to do what we want. And what we want is shaped by these very large scale cultural messages, right? So there's like, it's like sort of both and that in a way that feels really tricky. And it's easy to tell yourself, for instance, like I was telling myself during this period of my life, which wasn't that long ago, I'll confess, that I am a strong feminist lady. And I also, yay, body positivity. Yay, everyone gets to be whatever shape they want. You know, yay, Dove ads. You should do an episode on the Dove ads, by the way. Oh, um, Mike has already <laughs> laid claim to it. He's very excited. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then find myself kneeling in a bathroom, you know. And we did an episode with Sony Renee Taylor not too long ago. Um, and her book, The Body, Your Body is Not an Apology, or The Body is Not an Apology, um, you know, just hit me really hard because the way we shorthanded it in the title of the episode is you can't hate yourself and save the world. If you are doing to yourself the kinds of oppression, the kinds of estrangement from uh, power, the kinds of, um, you know, separating yourself from love, from acceptance, whatever, if you're doing that to yourself, it's really hard to help raise up other people and to undo the bigger structure that you're all in. Absolutely. And I think, you know, a number of folks have written about this, that this is, you know, there's sort of that famous, like, religion is the opiate of the masses kind of quote. And I think there's like a similar sort of vibe that a lot of feminists have written about in terms of dieting, right? That dieting is this massive industry that keeps women focused on, like, predominantly women, right? Not exclusively, but predominantly women focused on changing ourselves rather than changing our conditions. Um, and that feels like... Uh, you know, a place where we've all probably got quite a bit of work to do. I mean, there's also sort of similar exhortations in feminism right now about like, take up space, don't let anybody make you shrink yourself, all of that sort of stuff. 
that is sort of emotional um, and interpersonal folks are talking about. Um, but when you show up in those spaces as a fat person, the physicality of take up space gets a really different reception. You know what I mean? Like it is a, I mean, I, uh, it's a real, it's a real tricky thing. As a straight sized person, I cannot really know what it means as someone with basically skinny privilege, um, which took me a while to accept, by the way, like it's because we're so encouraged to think of ourselves as fat, no matter what, that's part of the problem, right? Is like perfectly normal sized women like myself are encouraged to think of, I am encouraged by my culture to think of myself as fat. Totally. <laughs> but like, yes, there is this way in which thinness becomes like the holy grail that is sort of like always out of reach to everyone. Um, and I think there is a way in which um, that encouragement for uh, straight size women, so people who don't wear plus size, this is what we mean when we say straight size, um, for straight size women to see themselves as fat, um, also really stinies conversations about what people who do wear plus sizes need, right? Because we will say, hey, you and I, uh-huh, yeah, 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 right. So like I can show up in body positive spaces or like mainstream body positive spaces, right? And say, hey, I'm a fat person. What I need is this. And what I will get is a bunch of people going, oh my God, I totally know. I feel super fat today. And it, like, I hate the way that I look and just remember that you're beautiful, right? <laughs> Which is sort of like, I'm like, no, no, no. I want to talk to you about how you had chairs at this event that don't fit me. And how this body positive space has some really like in shape, not quite plus size people representing largeness, right? Like our plus size models who are <laughs> like literally not plus sized. Yeah. Plus sizes in the modeling industry start at about a size eight, um, which is like half <laughs> of where consumer plus sizes start. Like it's really rough. Well, and there's this other thing that also happens in those sort of spaces and in my conversations with people who are less fat than I am. Um, and it's probably a something that I have done to people who are more fat than I am as well, which is um, that there is this assumption that comes from folks who are smaller than I am that uh, because I'm fatter than them and because they don't like their body, the logic is, well, she must hate her body. Reckoning with the fact that I am one third of her size, right? That I can go into any store and find clothing that fits me that people don't, you know, moo at me on public transit or whatever the things are, right? That there are sort of these experiences that you just don't have. And that's not an indictment of who you are. It just means we have different relationships to our own bodies. And it's always weird to me because I'm not particularly dissatisfied with my body, right? But I am sort of constantly approached by thin women who are like, girl, you know what it's like. You start eating and you can't stop. And I'm like, I don't really know what that's like at this point. You've heard me talk about Ken Euphorics before. It's the non-alcoholic drink for grown-ups. They have three amazing flavors. High Road, which is herbaceous and gives you the feeling of a lifted mind and relaxed body. It's great for any social hour you might have. It's a happy hour kind of drink. It lifts you up, gets you out of the workday slump. And then there's Ken's Spritz, a sparkling April-like brain boost with no hangover. It's light and refreshing. And because it comes in a can, I think, I always think of picnics and jazz in the park when I have it. 
even though those things are months and months away. And then there's my favorite, dream light. I literally have it almost every night. It's part of my wind down routine. I turn off the electronics. I settle down to read in bed with dream light on ice beside me. It's like a drink drink and then it's made to be sipped, not gulped. I can take my time with it and really unwind with my book. It has melatonin and other ingredients that promote restful sleep, but it's the ritual of it I like the most. And we've worked out a special deal for with friends like these listeners. Receive 15% off plus free shipping on your order. Go to kenuforix.com slash friends or use code friends at checkout to claim this deal. It is K-I-N-E-U-P-H-O-R-I-C-S dot com slash friends. 15% off with offer code friends. With Friends Like These is brought to you by Magic Spoon. I'm convinced that protein shakes are a scam. They taste like chalk most of the time, and who would want to drink one by choice? And why is it a drink? Probably because it's easy, right? It's hard to find a protein you don't cook in some way. Well, enter Magic Spoon. It's cereal. It does not require cooking. It does not require measuring. You don't have to dress it up to make it taste good. And Magic Spoon has released a brand new variety pack, now featuring peanut butter. They released peanut butter as a limited edition flavor in 2020, and it sold out three times. Peanut butter has gotten so much love, they've decided to keep it permanent and add it to the bestseller variety pack, which includes frosted, fruity, and cocoa. All of their cereals have zero grams of sugar, 13 to 14 grams of protein, and only four net grams of carbs in each serving if these things are important to you. And if calories are important to you, and I know for some of you they are, it only has a 140 calories a serving. It's keto-friendly, gluten-free, grain-free, soy-free, and low-carb. But I like it because it's cereal. It's another comfort ritual, right? And peanut butter happens to be my favorite flavor in the world. Seriously, I love it on crackers, with fruit, and Thai food, and now in cereal. I love it so much, I have tried mixing Magic Spoon peanut butter with every other flavor they have. With chocolate, it's a Reese's peanut butter cup. With frosted, it tastes kind of like a churro. And it's great with fruity, too. I mean, you like PB&Js, right? So go to magicspoon.com slash WFLT to grab a variety pack and try it out today. And be sure to use that promo code WFLT at checkout to save $5 off your order. And Magic Spoon is so confident in their product, it's backed with a 100% happiness guarantee. If you don't like it for any reason, they'll refund your money, no questions asked. Get your next delicious bowl of cereal at Magic Spoon. Magicspoon.com slash WFLT and use code WFLT to save $5 on the variety pack. Magicspoon.com slash WFLT. And now more with Aubrey Gordon. I want to so, so, so the, make an assumption about my audience. We're all such well, well-meaning people, well-meaning liberals who listen to this show. And people want to know, like, how do I do the thing that, uh, to make a better world in my everyday life? I'm going to point at shit like that, that I think people do, like, without being conscious of it at all. And also to make jokes about eating, to make jokes about binging, to make jokes about dieting, and including other people in the room in that joke is... We know not to do that with race. We know not to do that on a lot of stuff. And this is one of those things where I was talking to someone this morning and I was like, you know, it's sort of like telling people not to talk about the weather, right? It's such common small talk, right? That it is, it doesn't strike folks as like, this can be a harmful thing. Should we bring back uh, Weight Watchers? Sorry, like we want to bring back Weight Watchers because I, I kind of want to hear more about Jean. And, and, and her her story and her legacy. 
Jean remains the public face of Weight Watchers for, you know, 30-some years um, with Weight Watchers, something like that. Um, She stays on Weight Watchers until the day that she dies. She dies at her target weight, at the same weight that she lost, 142 pounds was her goal weight in her original diet, and she dies at 142 pounds. Um, she is survived by a couple of kids. Um, she sounds like a really lovely, charismatic, vibrant kind of lady. Um, and Weight Watcher sort of branches off from Jean's life and lives this sort of second life, right? As, um, sort of a property of a corporation, right? And what happens in that time to the business is really interesting. Um, Weight Watcher's sort of consistently has some pretty big financial problems, as it turns out. So starting in the early 90s, the field of sort of weight loss spaces and technologies becomes a whole lot more crowded. That's when we get Nutrisystem and Jenny Craig and like all of this other stuff, Slim Fast, right? All of that kind of stuff, Lean Cuisine, um, that are all sort of offering similar products and they have more competition than they kind of know what to do with. A similar thing happens when smartphones come around. Weight Watcher starts to get undercut by all of these smartphone apps that are free and sometimes more sophisticated and more up-to-date than a lot of Weight Watchers stuff. Um, And they are sort of having these really consistent and dramatic drops in subscribers. So in one quarter alone, I think this is 2014, they lose 600,000 subscribers in one quarter, right? So they're just like really sort of like, you know, on this wild roller coaster. So they start coming up with more and more sort of drastic fixes to their sales issues, right? One of those is that, uh, here, let me find it. Um, In 2018, in response to this, Weight Watchers announces that it's going to start offering free six-week memberships to teens as young as 13. Then, uh-oh, um, the next year, um, Weight Watchers announces that it has acquired an app called Curbo, um, which is designed and advertised for kids as young as eight. Oh my God. So they're sort of ushering in, again, like a big sort of theme of Weight Watchers land is we have lifetime members, right? It's not a diet, it's a lifestyle change, and that means you are lifetime members, and they're not kidding around, right? They are talking to children about this business, and there is a huge backlash from eating disorder providers in particular who are saying, yo, you can't just have an app for (laughs) eight-year-olds because what we know is that kids and teens who diet are about five times more likely to develop restrictive eating disorders. Um, and they're more likely to become fat, right? Uh, again, the number one predictor of future weight gain is previous attempts to lose weight. So it really is setting kids up to be unhappy with their bodies and to have bodies that are um, sort of rejected by other people as well, right? Which is like having a fat body. What we know is that folks who engage in what researchers call fat talk, which is sort of the idea of going, oh my God, I hate my thighs. Oh my God, my diet isn't working. Oh my God, I have to cover up. Nobody wants to see this, right? I've got all these roles, right? Whatever those things are, is both a powerful sort of bonding mechanism amongst folks. And it's also something that some research seems to indicate we don't actually participate in because we want to. We participate in it because we think other people expect us to. 
And all of that stuff, all of that negative body image sort of talk, when we sort of thrust that into public spaces, it impacts the person who's saying it, it impacts the person who's hearing it, it impacts anyone who happens to be within earshot, and it is linked to uh, lower self-esteem, lower body satisfaction, lower sexual satisfaction, and weaker relationships of all kinds. And I think it's worth thinking about, you know, Weight Watchers sort of calls their model a support group, but it's also a place that is sort of inviting of that kind of talk historically, right? So it's ostensibly sort of helping folks without really attending to this part that we know does quite a bit of harm. And I think when you introduce kids and teens into that kind of set of thinking, it gets pretty bleak <laughs> to me pretty quickly, you know, it's a, it's a rough place to go with it. It does remind me of other systems of oppression too, like the way we, um, like the way you like racism and sexism thrive when we make jokes about race that are racist and and sexist, and we bond over like um, that hag teacher that we have, like you know the, to to use stereotypes to talk about other people as a bonding experience. Right? Yeah, um, I mean, I think like as we're talking about this stuff. It's actually like a good segue back to Weight Watchers stuff, which is that one of the ways that they sort of deal with their financial difficulties is in 2015, um, they sign Oprah as a spokesperson who is like the queen of this kind of like sort of continual pursuit of weight loss, right? Um I am exactly old enough to remember Oprah losing a bunch of weight and then wheeling a wheelbarrow of fat out on stage. Do you remember this moment? It was like sort of a big cultural flashpoint. And then we all watched Oprah sort of like return to her existing size and shape, right? We all sort of watched Oprah sort of like go on this roller coaster several times. She's also an avatar of the fat talk, right? Like the way that she interacts about her body is like, isn't it hard? Like, hey... You know, everybody understands like what how how hard this is to lose weight and like eat in the and I know the the ad she does for Rage Watchers about you can still eat bread. It's so interesting. That's what I mean, what's why your show is so great. And once you start digging into this stuff, the how constructed it is is it is like I keep wanting to compare it to other systems of oppression. Because it is like seeing for the first time, like once you learn about white privilege, right? Once you learn about patriarchy, like you're like, oh. It's like a skeleton key to understanding a whole slew of things. Absolutely. And it's like going into the matrix, right? Like there's no going back, <laughs> right? You now see it and can't unsee it. Absolutely. It, once you start thinking about this stuff, any of these any of these systems, I really do think like you can't unsee it. I mean, you could, I guess, if you get real uncomfortable and you want to develop some amnesia, you can. Right. I was going to say the other thing um, that's been really fascinating about all of this is we have started getting slews of emails from folks who are medical researchers or scientists or folks who are sort of doing this work full time who have repeatedly used the same phrase, which is that our research on nutrition um, and sort of dietetics is, and I quote, in the dark ages, they're like, oh, it's like almost not science. Like it's so bad, <laughs> like maybe we shouldn't call it science. <laughs> it's like sort of the vibe of these emails. So I think it's, that also provides a really interesting and stark contrast to 
you know, I think many of us think we know all the things that you can do for your health, right? Many of us think we know we have a really strong idea of what a healthy diet is and an unhealthy diet and all this sort of stuff. And truly, when you get down to it, research-wise, a lot of that stuff we don't know, right? Quote, unquote. And uh, a lot of that, again, is sort of like diet-based marketing, right? A lot of my personal ideas about what is and isn't healthy come straight from Weight Watchers, which is not an uninfluenced system and not a research-based institution, right? Like that's not their thing. And there's not a lot of guidance about what you do if you want to divorce yourself from diet culture, if you want to speak back against it in your personal life. Yeah. I mean, it's really, really tricky, right? And it's hard to know. I think one of the hard things about sort of tackling our own relationship to diet culture, both in terms of how it shapes how we see our own bodies and uh, the unpleasantness here (laughs) is also like how we treat other people, whether or not we think we treat other folks differently. Most of us do, right? So um, grounding in that is uh, according to Harvard University, and this is as of 2016, so numbers may have shifted a little bit. Um, around 80% of Americans have pretty strong biases against fat people and in favor of thin people on a systemic level and on an individual level, right? So part of the hard thing about figuring out how to show up and push back against anti-fat bias, push back against diet culture, push back against all of these things is a little bit of a like chicken and the egg of like, do I heal myself first and then sort of move into activism world? Or do I move into activism world and hope that the healing follows, right? And it's really, really hard because it is sort of, as Sonia Renee Taylor says, the great both and, right? It's it's kind of both things. Um, the idea um, that we will heal ourselves completely at any point while we're still sort of constantly being injured by this culture feels maybe like, not totally a possibility. As a VAT person, it feels pretty discouraging to think that people will wait until they are done with their years-long journey of feeling better about their bodies to like show up for us in any way, right? Like it's sort of like, but it's genuinely a hard question. I totally don't have like answers on that front, but man, oh man, it feels really tricky. I mean, I do think that there's some stuff that kind of anybody can do, right? Um, That feels like uh, not this impossible hill to climb. That is things like, if you see someone making a fat joke, tell them to knock it off. If you see someone giving a fat person a hard time, uh, interrupt that person. If you're not comfortable interrupting them, go in and check on the fat person after it happens and see what they need and what they want. You know, just like baseline gestures of human kindness <laughs> are like a pretty good starting place and don't require you to have healed your entire body image or to have developed this whole intense sort of lens around anti-fatness and diet culture and all of these sorts of things. But like those little acts of kindness are. Um, you know, things that I think a lot of us can do and are things that a lot of fat folks just don't get, you know? Um, so it's like a small and meaningful way to show up for folks who are, who are fatter than us. And that was Aubrey Gordon, a.k.a. your fat friend and the co-host of Maintenance Phase, your new second favorite podcast. Diet culture has a particularly insidious effect on Black women and Black femme bodies. 
And that's why this week we're highlighting the work of the Loveland Foundation. Founded by activist Rachel Cargill, the Loveland Foundation gives grants and organizes around providing therapy for Black women and girls and giving mental health support to all Black communities. If you go to their website, www.thelovelandfoundation.org, you can donate directly yourself or you can find ways to donate collaboratively by creating a giving circle of friends or by becoming a social media champion and spreading the word. Therapy is expensive. And therapists who can speak to the particular needs of Black women and girls are hard to find. Loveland helps bridge the gaps in finding that care. Again, their website, www.thelovelandfoundation.org. And that is it for the show. On a personal note, and to give you a audio peek behind the scenes, I guess, I am recording this week's show right now from my closet in my new home in Austin, Texas. I moved here a few months ago. And I apologize to everyone for bringing the Minnesota weather with me. But just want you to know, Exley the dog and I have been very lucky. We haven't lost power, not yet. Uh, We lost our water for a day or so. And also, I happened to have laid in lots of dog food before this started and lots of pantry food for me. I feel powerless in other ways. I can't do much to help people. It's overwhelming. Everyone I know is suffering. Everyone I don't know is suffering. The idea that taking care of myself is enough for me to do right now is really hard to believe. So I'll say it to you because I believe it for you. And you can believe it for me. Please, take care of yourselves. As a chef and a restaurant owner, I'm as meticulous about my cookware as I am about my ingredients. That's why I love Made In Cookware. Each pan they make isn't just designed to perform, it's crafted to last. As a mom, I love that I can trust Made In. It's made from the world's finest materials, so I can feel good about what I'm feeding my family. I'm Chef Brooke Williamson, and I use Made In Cookware. This is BVK for Ocean City Tourism, OCMD Streaming Audio. On March 11th, 2024, The title of the spot is STSA Leisure Summer. This is a 30-second composite stereo streaming audio mix. Get away with friends to the laid-back Maryland coast, where you can catch up while casting off and hang 10 while hanging out, where a day on board is never boring and full throttle is half the fun, where you can sink a putt, raise a glass, And there's always room for one more round. Ocean City, Maryland. Somewhere to smile about. Book your trip at Oceocean.com.